If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, along with co-host Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great. How are you, Andy? Good, thanks. And awesome. Hugh Sign. How you doing, Hugh? I'm very well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Hi, we're Hugh. So, we're so excited today. We have a special guest, Steve Sabesma, legendary concert promoter, um, as our guest today. Uh, Steve got his start as a promoter back in 1972. Uh, based in Indianapolis at that time, he promoted shows independently before he joined Heritage Concert Promoter Sunshine Promotions in 1974. Sunshine grew to be one of the biggest and most successful concert promotion companies in America, doing over 7,500 concerts across all the Midwest, um, out West, South, and into Puerto Rico even. More than 2,500 of those events were in Indiana. Um, in 1989, uh, Steve helped found, co-found uh, Deer Creek Music Center, a big amphitheater north of uh, Indianapolis, as well as had a major uh, role in uh, renovating the Louisville Palace Theater, also opening the Polaris Amphitheater in Columbus, Ohio, and also the Murat Theater downtown Indianapolis, now known as Old National Center. Um, eventually, all of the Sunshine Companies were sold to a company called SFX, which became Clear Channel, now known as Live Nation. Uh, Steve resigned from that company in 2000. And after a two-year sabbatical, uh, he moved to Shanghai in 2003 to promote Western artists in China. And then he co-founded China West Entertainment uh, with um, two partners, Adam Wilkes and Rob Spitzer, um, and uh, was there for like 11 years uh, in China. Eventually, uh, merged that company, China West, with uh, another company called A2 Live. Uh, Steve moved back to the U.S. in 2014 uh, in Florida and co-founded the Okeechobee Music and Arts Festival uh, there. Uh, so without further ado, I want to welcome our guest on the Music Buzz podcast this week, Steve Sebesma. Welcome, Steve. Hi there. Hi. Thanks a lot for having me today. Just just to kick us off, when we, we got on our call earlier, doing our quick little intros before we jumped in, I had to bring up the fact that all of us are actually connected. You know, Steve used to be my boss at Sunshine. Dane's been playing the skins for John Mellencamp Band since 96, of which Steve promoted a lot of those shows. Yep. And Hugh helped design, of course, all the Rush cover stuff. So this album, which I pulled out of my collection not too long ago and noticed, of course, Hugh's name in it, as, as most Rush records. Uh, and then also in the liner notes, a big thank you to Steve Sebesma Sunshine. So I just wanted to, you know, start the show off by saying we're actually all one big happy family and we didn't even know it until today. That's so, right. It's nice to find that out today. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's probable his name was on other albums that I typeset as well, but Might good point. Been. I haven't seen yeah. those yet either. Good point. That could, that, well, that, that's the fact-finding mission there. Well, Steve, so you started promoting uh, in 1972 in Indianapolis. And oddly enough, that was when I started going to shows when my dad would take me to see rock concerts when I was in seventh grade. Uh, and I, I thought I read that you uh, did shows at the Rivoli Theater, Melody Skateland. Right. Those so, places. Yeah, so um, 
you know, when I got started, um, I was looking for places in Indianapolis where I could kind of do a series of concerts. So and I, my first concert was January 2nd, 1972 at Melody Skateland. So I, as a kid... You remember who that was? I yeah, well, I, I can look it up easily, but I know that it was um, uh, not Roadmaster, but their predecessor, Pure Punk. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think Faith Band, yeah, Faith Band was on that show, too. Okay. Uh, would have been Limousine then. So, yeah, sure would have. Yeah. So. That's awesome. Well, I saw Roger McGuinn at the Rivoli Theater in 1973, um, so I'm sure you had something to do with that show back in the day. Probably did we because I so I started doing shows at, at the Melody Skate when I was the first one to ever do shows and other people did shows after that. Same thing with the Ridley. I was the first one to do a rock show at the, at the Ridley Theater and that was uh, January twelfth of seventy three. So I did a bunch of shows with the, at the Ridley in seventy three and a few in seventy four. But by then, you know, I was with Sunshine, we were growing, doing shows everywhere. So. Sure. Well, tell us about how you, as you grew as a promoter and you got involved uh, uh, with Joe and Dave Lucas, what you learned about the business as you went on. Well, it was kind of um, promoter 101, you know, just mm. learn, learn by as, as you go, because I hadn't, back in 72, anybody in the music business, you know, learned as they went because there were no schools for, uh, for promoters, there were no schools for, you know, engineers that I'm aware of, and uh, probably most band members got started because of the Beatles. But sure, <laughs> but uh, but you know, so it was just a matter of, you know, one one day I was, uh, you know, I just I had a roommate, and we said let's do a rock concert, and uh, and then you know we tried to book shows at the Coliseum artists at the Coliseum, but we couldn't book any national acts because we had no experience. So we ended up booking uh, that first show in Melody Skating with local bands and then did a couple of more, a couple of other shows with local bands. And then, then I started doing some national acts and the, and the first national act that I ever promoted was a band called Climax that uh, had a, a kind of cheesy song out called Precious and Few. And it wasn't a very good show, but but it was my first national show. And then, and then after that, I I booked Edgar Winter um, with um, with um, forget who else was on the show Blues Project. I think was a, a, on the show with them. And oh wow! So I started doing some rock, rock rock shows, and that's what I really wanted to do. Awesome, awesome. And this was this was all back when. Bands barely knew what what staging and, and and live audio was about too. That's for sure. At, at the Melody Skateland, of course, they didn't have a stage, and and they had a low ceiling, so we had to build our own stage. So uh, Dan Castings and myself and Mike Penrose, my best friend, uh, then uh, we all built a stage out of four by fours and plywood. So awesome. <laughs> Yeah, four by fours and plywood. I love it. How yeah. long did it take you to build the stage? Do you remember? I don't remember. A few days, probably. Or I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a big task. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a big deal to have a drum riser like Ringo Starr. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, well, well, tell us about your mentors in the business. Well, you know, I guess Bill Graham was an inspiration to a lot of young promoters. But actually, in in 1972, when I started. There were a lot of promoters around, um, you know, Chris Hill did the stuff at the Ritz and, and, um, and my, my, the guy I got started with, we split off after two shows and his name was Harry Creeley and he did a few more shows after that. And, um, and then there was sunshine, but then, you know, there were big promoters coming into Indianapolis out of Chicago, Cleveland and, and, uh, and Detroit. So um, I guess you know, when I was trying to book national acts, my my uh, inspiration came from the bigger promoters that were established. You know, Belkins in, in Columbus, uh, Bob Garris in in, um, in Detroit, and then another guy out of Cleveland, got a guy named um, Roger Abramson, had a company called A Friend Productions, 
and he did a lot of shows in Indianapolis at the time. So I guess those were, uh, I didn't know them, but I guess they were inspirations more than mentors. Sure. So back in those days, Steve, if you can take us back to the seventies, early eighties. So, you know, obviously booking shows, producing shows, you know, selling tickets and all that kind of stuff. But what, what was your day to day in, in those times? You know, we can talk a little bit about modern concert promotions a little bit, but take us back to that time. Like what was, what was Steve Sebesma's job? If somebody said, dialed it back to the mid seventies, so what do you do, Steve? You know, what was that? Well, like? I guess, you know, before, before I joined Sunshine in, in um, 74, middle, middle of 74, you know, I worked either, I worked out of my apartment or, or I worked, um, you know, I ended up being partners with a, a boxing promoter in Indianapolis named Howard Layden. And we, we became partners in, after I started the shows at the Rivley, but in March of 73. So I, he had an office, but I kind of did everything then, you know, it's, um, uh, and I called up my friends, whether it was Dan Castings or a few other kind of the, the guys that helped out a lot on the shows, we just did it as, as a group of friends, you know, and whether it was the catering and the catering for a concert in 72, 73 was, you know, you get some Cokes and you get a deli tray and, you know, uh-huh. nothing fancy. So we didn't have catering companies back then. Right. Uh, sure. Yeah. Right. So what were, so, if you can, you can maybe share with us, you know, memories wise of those days, what were the, the shows at the beginning that you were just like totally jazzed that you got or you were a part of, whether it's Sunshine or you're on your own? What were the ones you're like, oh, man, I want this one so bad and you got it? Well, I, you know, the, the Ridley Theater was a, a, a big deal for me because those first few shows I did at the Ridley, Siegel Schwal, Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. Um, we did Ario Speedwagon. We did uh, Michael Bloomfield. The shows were cool and the place was cool and it was, you know, it was only my second year and it, it was, it was so much fun. I mean, it was, it was just to do another show and, you know, I might sell out the Rivoli and, and make $800. You know? right. And that was pretty good money at the time. It wasn't bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which so, is funny, uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun, but I guess, you know, and, um, I remember the first time I did Frank Zappa. I did him. I promoted Zappa at, at uh, Notre Dame at the Athletic and Convocation Center up there. Oh wow. What, wow! what year was that? Do you remember what year that was? That was that was in '74. It was uh, oh wow. You know, it was like May of set in '74. Wow. And uh, and I, re- I remember I had about six or seven thousand people at the concert, and and I and I was just uh, it was just so exciting. That I was promoting this, and I looked at the crowd. You know, I'm I'm probably younger than most of the kids in the crowd. Right? Yeah. yeah. So it was it was you know it was great. That that was a great period for Zappa too, because he had a kind of not hits out, but he had those really big records, right? Uh, apostrophe and overnight sensation. And don't you eat that yellow snow? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he was actually getting some radio play back then too. That yeah. period of time. Yeah, that was back. That was back when we would go to our friend's house and we'd bring our albums over, and, and yeah. you know, we'd all get stoned and listen to each other's albums and stuff. I I remember all that really well. <laughs> so. Well, it's good that you remember it. Not everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. My, my friend, Mike uh, Penrose, he, he was good friends with uh, Joey Ray and the guys in The Ritual. And I remember going over to their apartment and it was like walking into a Cheech and Chong movie. You opened the door <laughs> and the place, it was like black light during the day and all the windows sure. were shut and they had the black lights on and the, and the music was playing so loud and, and they opened the door and the smoke just like rolled out of billowing the out. That's great. <laughs> so, anyway, it was uh-huh. a crazy that, that's exactly Those the stories the we're looking for, Steve. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the days. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. So, um, I want to bring up, which I, when I did the intro and talking about stuff, um, the one thing I didn't mention is one of your, or your big project you're working on right now, uh, Indiana Rock History, which is a, um, a website and also a Facebook page that Steve has created. And, um, and I've been uh, involved in it somewhat with Steve, but Steve, it, it's amazing what you're doing with that, because I, I think I wish every heritage concert promoter across the country would do what you're doing for us in Indiana. 
because it's really a gift to be able to look at the site, have people participate, share photos of their old concert stubs and posters and everything. And you're doing an amazing job with that. Tell us a little bit more about that and that project. All right. Well, <clears throat> I guess, you know, I, we kept a log of the concerts that we did and I, I and I've, you know, probably got, I, and I've estimated, as you said, 7,500, but I realize I've missed a lot <laughs> because this process as I found a lot of shows that we didn't log and, and uh, so we, we really did, we did a lot of shows. Um, and so we had this information. I just thought, I don't want it to just go away. You know, I wanted to create some, a platform for it. So the platform being a um, chronological or by date or by artist, you know, on, on the website, you can research, you can, you go, you can pick a year and you can look at all the shows in Indiana, or you can pick Aerosmith and you can see all the shows Aerosmith did in Indiana. And then you can dig a little deeper. And, and like, I kept the, the history on how much we paid the artists, how much, um, um, you know, how much, what the gross was and what the attendance was. I can't believe, you can't believe how many people saved all their ticket stubs and mm -hmm. took photos. And now, so now I'm, I get this stuff every day and I'm, I've got a backlog of stuff that I have to enter into the, uh, into the website now because I, I, I have a hard time keeping up. It's sure. a lot of hours just doing that. Um, but it's, it gets better every day. I mean, I mean, every day I might add, you know, five or 10 concerts that weren't on my list. And, and it's not just our concerts. It's, all concerts. Right. Yeah. That's an important point. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. cool, man. And it's for all of Indiana. Now I got a list from um, the Fort Wayne Coliseum. They kept a, a list of every show they did for, you know, always and up to till now. So I got that from them. And again, it's going to take me a long time to get that in, but I want to get it in for Fort Wayne, for Evansville, you know, South Bend, all the venues. It's, so it's going to grow and, and become a great historical reference point for people well a lot of people think of fort wayne and those other cities as uh, secondary to indianapolis and and yet it, it amazed me that mccartney played to 8500 people a couple of years ago in fort wayne indiana right. yeah good right. point sure yeah did. well the website is indianarockhistory.com for those of you that are interested in checking that out and also on facebook be sure to look up indiana rock history as well and uh, and if you have stuff to post from past Indiana concerts, by all means, please do. So Steve and I, we, you know, I, Steve was my boss back at Sunshine. And when he um, started working on this project and he and I have stayed in touch over the years. So what was um, Andy really like back then? Yeah. That's, what we <laughs> That's a whole know. separate show. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we want to know. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, I was a young kid. No, Steve was one of the ones is definitely one of my mentors uh, in the business. And when he was starting up this site, um, he, I don't know, we were texting or something. And I had started this kind of to your point, I had started this Instagram account a few years ago called Indiana Concert Posters. And I was only doing it just because, like Steve says, you're amazed at all the people that keep their ticket stubs or posters or T-shirts. I just did it because I wanted to personally. Like, I like to go out there and find old concert stuff from shows in Indiana. And I was honestly just doing it for myself um, just to get my, my kicks out of that. And then Steve, I told Steve about it. I'm like, you know, Steve, I I've done this Instagram thing. If you want it and we can just tie it in with what you're doing. And, and uh, he said, okay, yeah. And I don't, I didn't ask you this, Steve, but I don't know your first reaction was probably like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Andy. And then like the next day he's like, actually, this is great. And so I kind of thought, yeah, yeah, I told you it was good. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But it, I think my point in saying that is, is two, two things. One is you're absolutely right. Pe people's passion runs so deep from these shows dating back, you know, 20, 30, 40, whatever years. And they don't throw stuff away when it comes to this stuff. This stuff really means a lot to them. So I think, what you're doing to capture that is is not just a fun thing. I think it's an important thing um, from a historical perspective as it pertains to Indiana. So thank you for doing it. Yeah, no question about it, man. It's great. Well, I, I appreciate that because I think it's important too, and and uh, and I'm I'm pleased with uh, the way it started out. I mean, we've already got a thousand members on Facebook. You know, that's you know we have the most interaction on Facebook, but then but then. 
you know, I try to lean people toward the uh, the website because that's where the the history is. That's where right. it goes. Sure. Um, all right. We're going to shift gears a little bit, and Hugh's going to dive into some some uh, questions regarding uh, kind of the the uh, the visual side of the business, if you will. Okay. Well, which beckons the question as someone in your position. Um, well, I'm sure a lot of this gets delegated by you. Um, how important are the visuals and how, how in control are you of local visuals? Are you provided those by the record company or by band and management? Or do you actually step up and do visuals for the incoming bands? And I know that probably has various different answers depending on whether we're talking about 1974 or 19 or 2018, you know, um, I'm curious how big a deal that was for you. It was, um, it's always been a big button. Visuals probably, you mean in marketing and how do you market the show? Like the Fillmore posters that were so famous, you know? Right. Well, if you get on the website, you'll see that in the seventies, um, there were a lot more concert posters like from the Fillmore. And we did a bunch for the Rivoli. Uh, John Heiner, a local guy from Indianapolis, um, who's passed away now. But John did some great posters for the the Rivoli shows that I did. Um, and some of the fe early festivals that were in Indianapolis had some great, great posters, too. Um, and, you know, as I look at some of the old artwork, though, you you can see why that over time it changed because a lot of times the artwork didn't represent the artist very well. And actually in, um, after a few years, we started using a company called Sarah graphics from Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. did some really great posters for us. And then that evolved into at sunshine promotions. We started, um, we started our own company called tour design. Mm -hmm. uh, which we sold with our other companies and it's still existing. And it's still being, it's run by uh, Fergie Ferguson. You, any, a lot of people know her from Indianapolis and from the business. Everybody in the business knows her. Um, oh, yeah. She still runs the company and we started with posters. Um, and then the, that grew to uh, radio spots and television spots. But the idea was that we, and, and also um, ads for the newspaper. So it gave the artists a consistent um, look everywhere in the country because some promoters were doing a great job and some weren't doing such a good job. And how much of that was um, provided and how much did you actually have to, to uh, orchestrate from this end, from, from the, the venues end? I only ask because in the case of, say, Rush, one of my oldest and dearest clients, I was the one that did all their billboard magazine ads and I did all their ad mats and, you know, uh, RPM kind of announcements, uh, Rolling Stone and posters. They wanted that controlled by, of course, that is also very rush to kind of control everything. Right. But I would imagine a lot of bands had art directors that would supply you with that or did you actually have to do that from your end? Well, uh, as I said, if you look at the early Kiss ads, the, the artwork on the ads were just all over the place and some of it was terrible. So, but then, it, then they started having ad mats and, and it started looking, it got better and better. Yeah. The same thing with rush. Actually, I, although I, I don't remember what year did you get started with rush? 74. Okay. Yeah. Early in. So, so those ad mats that we had in 74, 75, you did those. Probably not as early as that. We started taking, we started uh, resting control when we realized how record companies would would expect to be involved. And, and Rush was not big on having A&R people present in the studio. And they, they did something particularly egregious to our my first involvement with them on, a, on an album called Caress of Steel, which kind of shed light on the fact that record companies still like to put their stamp on things, whether welcome or not, you know, uh, or whether, you know, so we, we decided that we better rest control of that. We did a lot of our shows and, and I got to be pretty good friends with, with all the guys in, in the, in the band. And so that was a, you know, one of the, one of the tours I always look forward to. 
So how, how was it that you you were thanked on the All the Worlds a Stage? Did you come up to Massey Hall? Were you part of that? No, I think it was just they they thanked people that were were uh, close to them on that on that tour before that record. Did you ever get involved providing staging design for bands that didn't have all that together, or was that always something that came on the trucks with the band? No, if staging design you know, started with the artists, but before there was staging design, we just hired a PA and lights and then they send a, uh, a diagram and, and that, and we give it to a lighting company. So, well, going back to earlier in the conversation, one thing, and kind of the reason I'd asked earlier, um, and you made reference to basically at the beginning, having to do it all and having to learn how to do it all. And I think anybody that I've come across in the concert business at your level over this many years of, of doing what you do, it seems like they all basically are had to do it all at one point and learn how to do it all. And it, and it feels like to me that that's one of the keys is un, not just trying to do it all, but understanding it. Yeah, it helps a lot. But then what's it's better when you when you grow and you can hire people that can do a better job than you can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's what Sunshine did. In, in my opinion, was one thing I always noticed over the years that you guys you know, um, we're very successful and charismatic and all those things, which is awesome. But at the end of the day, you surrounded yourself with really good people in all those areas of production and, um, and marketing and sponsorship and, you know, all this, you know, this behemoth that the uh, live entertainment business has become. Yeah. So you asked me earlier, you know, my mentor was, you know, I, I guess Dave Lucas was an amazing partner. And he's, he's still a great friend. And Dave, um, he's more of a peer, but he's also a mentor too because he 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 led the Sunshine Promotions. He did a great job. He made it he made it a family. Um, he always did things for the employees, whether it was a Christmas party or an outing of some sort. Or um, was, he just helped to, to make it a great company. He really did. So bumping along in, the, in your career here, so, you know, past the 70s, into the 80s, what are the big shows, you know, stadium shows and stuff that you got and you can tell us about just kind of memories of big shows that stick out in your mind? Like, man, you know, this is a, you know, these are the big ones that stick out all these years later. Early on in the 70s, you know, we did shows in Louisville at the Cardinal Stadium. We did shows with uh, Ted Nugent was a headliner of one of them. Bob Seger was a headliner of one of them. We had two in one year and, and another one in a different year. So we did we did a lot of a big rock festival stadium type shows. Um, the biggest stadium show I ever did was Elton John and Billy Joel at um, Ohio State University. We did seventy three thousand people. So that was that was the biggest show that we ever did. So seventies and eighties, you know, theater shows, arena shows. Walk us through the process of why Sunshine decided to build. Which, yes, I'm biased, um, but I've been to a lot of amphitheaters all over the country. Uh, some work, some for pleasure. And I got, I got to tell you, man, it's uh, Deer Creek Music Center now, Ruoff um, Music Center in Noblesville, Indiana. It's still one of the best sounding places, one of the best places, sight lines, no matter where you're at. Walk us through the process of why you guys built Deer Creek back in the 80s. All right. That's a good story, so I'll be happy to tell it. Um, in 1978, we, we decided we want to build an amphitheater in Indianapolis. So Dave and I, and I think maybe all three of us, Joe probably went to, we, we flew up to uh, Michigan to um, Pine Knob, and we took a look at Pine Knob and Boy, were we disappointed because we saw, hell, it's going to take millions of dollars and no way can we build a place like that. So we came back to Indianapolis and that's when we got the tennis center of 1978 or so, or 78, 79. And we started doing summer concert series at the at tennis center, which was a really cool thing. We did a lot of great shows. There it was, it was really awesome. But the, the whole intent was to build it up and do as many shows as we could to build into building our own amphitheater. The business was leaning in that direction. The Nederlanders had the, you know, the one in Cincinnati and they had a few others around the country. 
and there were a few other promoters starting to build them. And, and so, you know, so we finally um, came up, I actually, you know, my friend, uh, Steve Hilbert, who owned Conseco, you know, I, he was a good friend of mine. So I convinced him to fund it. You know, he always said, I think we'll do it. I think we'll do it. But then we still had to find the place and we had to go through all the work at, at the four different locations until we found Deer Creek. What other locations were you guys looking to possibly build? The first one was in Westfield, Indiana. And that was um, probably in 85. We, we started in Westfield and we, we went through the zoning. You know, we went to the commission. We tried to get the land. We, we found the land and, and then we were defeated by the neighbors and everybody. They, they had meet, public meetings and they, and they, they, it's like trying to build a um, waste treatment plant in somebody's backyard. Nobody wants it. You know, so we had these public meetings and they bust two bus full people from Illinois and, it, and they had this, this preacher there and he said, your daughters will be dancing in the streets with the devil. This is the guy from oh, Illinois. Boy. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so then, so then we, our next location was on West 86th street, just West of 465, you know, that big wooded area that's full of houses now, but it was, we, we tried to go in there, but that only lasted about two weeks. We were shut down quickly by, by all the wealthy people in that, in that area. Right. And then we went to downtown Indianapolis. That was our third location. And we fought really hard to get it built downtown at White River State Park. And um, I think it was Mayor Hudnut was at the time, and he, he was behind us. And But, you know, politically it was just difficult. And then we found we found the land in Noblesville, which was unzoned. So because it was unzoned, we didn't have to – you know, get the zoning changed and it took away a lot of stuff. Not that we didn't fight for a long time to get it done there, but right. it was a, it was a difficult process. And we had a group there against us. They were, the group in Westfield was, uh, I forget the name, but the, the one in, uh, in, um, Noblesville was rad residents against detrimental development. So rad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rad. That was crazy. But when we built Deer Creek, it was almost immediately successful. First year, I think we lost like $50,000 the first year. And then after that, it just grew and grew. It became really successful. And I mean, it, it really was successful. And, to this day, it is the number one amphitheater that, that Live Nation owns. Yeah, it's, a, it's the number one, in, not just in the United States, but That's in the right. world. Most profitable amphitheater that they own. Yeah, such a, such a great place. I mean, I, thank you very much. I didn't sell it to you for enough money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway. So after that, you ended up, um, you guys ended up working on uh, the Mirah and, and redid the Mirah and reopened it and also the Louisville Palace. So you, you guys got the bug, obviously, and, and couldn't stop, right? Yeah, all those things kind of happened, you know, cl- you know, Deer Creek was 89, we opened in 89, but then it was 94, 95 that we did the Murat, uh, the Louisville Palace, and, and Columbus. They were all within a couple of years in that 94, 95, 96 time period. Take us through the process of, you know, uh, around... What, what, what year did you leave? Was it around two, 2000, right? Okay. Before we yeah. get into the next phase of, of your career, I have to tell a Steve story. So I started working at Sunshine. I went from my first job in the Indiana State House, which was as horrible as you can imagine. So you don't have to go there. Um, and I got the job at Sunshine uh, to come in and do PR. And I'll never forget, it was like, like end of my first week, I was sitting in the conference room, just eating my lunch by myself because I, you know, packed my lunch. My wife, my wife still packed my lunch, believe it or not. Um, and I was sitting in there eating and Steve walks in and I don't really know him at all yet. And he says to me, you know, what are you doing this weekend? And I, we were probably going out to eat a broad report or something. I said, what are you doing? And Steve just looks at me and said, I'm going to Paris. And I'm thinking, oh, you're going on a vacation. And he's like, no, I'll be back Monday. <laughs> and it just blew me away because, you know, I was like, holy hairdo, man, I have landed in the right place. 
I am in the right place. And lo and behold, I come come in the office, and then we always had these early morning Monday meetings. Walk in there, and I'm thinking, there's no way he's going to be here. I walk in, there he is. <laughs> I'm like, did you go to Paris? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> this still well, blows me away. So <laughs> I always like to travel, and um, and my daughter was was going to school in right. Paris, and so I'm, I'm sure there was a. Here. But to me at the time, it's like I didn't even need a reason. I just thought it was cool that you were like it was a Friday at noon, and you're going to Paris for the weekend, and you. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so kind of mind blowing. That, that is a quick trip. Yeah, by golly. So take us through the process of after you left, and um, you ended up uh, you, you know two years sabbatical, and then you decided to, to move to China. I mean, wow. So why? And tell us about that experience. So in that two-year period, I wasn't totally a sabbatical because I did open the Lotus nightclub downtown Indianapolis, right? which was an electronic music club to start with. And it was good. But then after, after a while, I would go, why am I doing this? And I was like, it's not, it's not what I really want to do. So I, I sold it after about a year and got out of it. But um, I traveled around the world, and I was in um, I was in Bangkok with uh, one of my best friends, who's Doug Banker. He's the manager of Ted Nugent, and he's he was Ted Nugent's road manager, and then became his manager a long time ago. So we've been good friends. And he said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I don't know." He said, he said, "Well, why don't you move to Asia and do concerts?" And I said, "It's probably locked up. It's probably." Uh, uh, corrupt <laughs> and and i was right about both things but i did get interested in it and and then and then through a indianapolis guy uh jim idle george he had some connections in china and he set me up through dave lucas and jim idle george they set me up with this guy in china and i and i went over there and did a, a kind of a a tour around and I was my intention was to move to Hong Kong and do shows all over Asia. When I got to Hong Kong and, and ended up going to China, I realized nobody was had a handle on China. You know, Live Nation wasn't there, uh, AG wasn't there, and there were just some mostly people living in Los Angeles booking shows to Chinese promoters. So I said, okay, I'm just going to move here and start like start from scratch, like I did in 1972. And, and that's kind of how I got there. And when I got there, I was, you know, hooked up with this, this Chinese guy. And he said, don't do anything for a while. He said, just live here a while, learn the, learn the culture. And so I did that and had a good time for a while. And then I was getting ready to leave because I, I just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. Then I met the two guys that two young guys from New York that were working for Sony and they spoke pretty good Chinese. Um, not as good as I thought they did, but they spoke good enough. I thought better they than were, you, right? Spoke good <laughs> but no, great guys. Anyway, smart guys. Um, they were in their early twenties. And, and so I brought them in as partners and we started doing shows and we started, our first show was, was Nora Jones, and then we—I mean, the stuff we did—I could—I I could tell China stories forever. But we started doing like I first guy to bring in uh, Tiesto. We did the Six City tour with Tiesto. Uh, we brought in James Brown in 2006. Um, that was the year he died, but it was in February 2006, and that was one of my favorite shows of my whole career, man, because I had never done a James Brown show. And um, it, it, it was a, a, we did it we did it in a small theater there again like in Indianapolis I had to find a small theater in in uh, Shanghai to do a series of shows and so we found this old theater it was fifteen hundred seats and it was owned by the army wow and so no red tape there yeah. <laughs> actually it was pretty easy when we met the the manager and. And we, we said we're going to do James Brown. That was our first show. And they thought we were absolutely crazy to bring some black guy in this old theater. And, and Pete, this is an old theater. And Shanghainese people don't like to go to the old theaters. They only want to go to the new stuff, right? And the theater only had uh, acrobatic shows every night, 365 days a year. And I said, well, I want to rent it. So how much are the tickets for the 
acrobatic show and they were like two or three dollars i said okay i'll just buy the whole place out right. and you guys taking the night off and they said okay great and they thought we were absolutely crazy and i said you guys sell beer here and they said yeah we sell beer and so they took me over and they showed me they had a little refrigerator with 24 beers in it <laughs> <laughs> that ain't gonna cut it and i said yeah. all right i'm gonna do you a favor i said go out and get a big tub and buy a thousand beers and i sit down and and double the price of your beer because it was so cheap. It was like 50 cents a beer or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so they, they bought 500 beers, sold them out in the first 20 minutes, and then they went out and bought another 500. And they sold everybody warm beer for the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> anyway, but the, the show was great, and James Brown was great. He was 74 years old, and he still did that splits thing on stage. Wow. And, wow. Oh, like, that's so cool, man. That's great. So you, you were in China for, was it 10 years, 11 years? 11 years. And, you know, I brought in Elton John. I brought in uh, Kanye West. I did Kylie Minogue. I had, uh, I didn't get to Stones and it kind of hurt my, hurt me over there to not get that show. I went to my competitor. Mm. Um, and, um, but I did a lot of great shows. Um, and I worked with uh, Don Misher, who's a, you know, a big television producer. He produced the uh, 2007 Special Olympics grand opening ceremonies in Shanghai, which was, you know, it was an amazing production. So I got to be the coordinator for all the, the talent and stuff. So it was really fun. I got to meet cool. uh, Jackie Chan and uh, Zhang Zhi. Yeah. And, <laughs> That's uh, great. Uh, cool. So that beckons the next question. So why did you leave China and then come to Florida? Well, I guess I was ready for a move. I lived there 11 years. I loved living there. Probably wanted to stay and do more, but I really wasn't that successful overall. You know, made money, lost money, but overall, over 11 years, lost money. You know, so I thought, well, okay, it's time to come back and, <laughs> and do something in America and, and where it's a lot easier to, it's a, you know, it's hard to explain how difficult it was to do a show there. Um, and I would, didn't finish on that, but you know, when, whenever an artist comes to China, you have to submit every song they're going to sing and the lyrics mm. uh, to the minister of culture. Oh. And a lot of times they wouldn't approve of certain songs or they wouldn't approve the artist. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, wow. So early on we used to, we made the translation. So when it, when it, had a cuss word or said something that we knew was offensive. We just changed the words. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but as time, as time went on, you know, they started having translations were easier. You know, these, you got all these apps and stuff to translate, you know, but in 2003, four, five, right. six, seven, it, it was, it was us translating. So wow. <laughs> our, our slid team. a few of those words by. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> oh, didn't know they were going to say that. Yeah, and then the, the the police in China have way too much control over concerts, yeah. and it's kind of like you've got to toe toe down to them. And when you go into these police meetings before the concert, they can change everything. They can change the show time. They can change. They can do anything they want, um, and give you a hard time for sure. You go into a room with fourteen police officers in Shanghai and they're all chain smoking and they start speaking in Mandarin, but then they start this switch over to Shanghainese, which is another, uh, you know, another, uh, a different language than, than Mandarin. And, uh, so we had to have Shanghainese, uh, employees working for us to help translate so they felt by speaking in a different dialect that they might be able to kind of do an end run around what they were talking about well no they just um they were polite in the beginning but you know then after that it's like you know we're shanghainese we speak shanghainese why we're not going to speak mandarin for you and you can sit there and the and the chief of police in shanghai has got a, like a seventy-five thousand dollar gold watch on and you know <laughs> yeah you know there's some corruption going on there mm. interesting <laughs> yeah so, so yeah, so, so China to Florida. So tell us about that. Um, so decided to move back. Well, before leaving, I keep going back to China, but before I left China, I produced uh, in 2013, I produced the first 
uh, big electronic festival in, in Shanghai. Um, and then in 2013, at the end of the year, I was home for Christmas and this guy that owned the land in, in Okeechobee got a hold of my daughter through his lawyer and she, he called me and said, he said, would you come and look at this um, property I have? I was, I think we could do some music on it. And I said, you know, I'm getting ready to go back to China in four days. And he said, well, he said, I, he said, I'll fly you down on my private jet. I want you to come and see it. And I said, just send me a ticket. And so I flew down on a Sunday for Christmas and I thought, I'm going to take a look at it. And if it's a great place, I'm going to call my friends at Live Nation or AG and tell them about it. But I went down and I saw this property in, in uh, Okeechobee and it was, it was so beautiful. <laughs> that The site for Okeechobee Music and Art Festival, is, it was amazing. And when I saw the site, I said, forget it. I'm going to move back to America. <laughs> um, I'm not going to call these guys. Fuck it. I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's, that's why I came back. So then that was late 213. So 214, I made a deal with the guy on the land. Um, so I was producing, I was working on producing a festival in Okeechobee when I was still in Shanghai producing the festival for the October of that year in Shanghai. So I made like 10 trips back and forth between Okeechobee and Shanghai that in 2014 to do, to do both. So it was, it was a, it was a difficult year. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Okeechobee is like also known as the, one of the greatest fishing lakes in the world. So you've been throwing a line out down there. No, nah, nah, I, I didn't have time to go fishing. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, producing a festival is a, um, it's a, it's a seven day a week, 12 to 14 hour day job. I believe it's, it. Yeah. So what's next? I have a few projects kind of in the works uh, that I don't really want to discuss right now, but, but uh, in the meantime, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm enjoying some downtime and, and I got to do the, the website for Indiana hit rock history. So I did that. I'm working on a book and, um, I'm going to travel a little bit. I'm going to uh, go down and live in Mexico for a little while. So. Where in Mexico are you heading? Uh, Playa, Playa del Carmen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Head down there for a few months and, and uh, enjoy the winter. <laughs> so if somebody asks you, Steve, they say, okay, all these years of doing concerts, what what are the stories? Tell us a couple, you know, doozy stories that, we, that we've got to hear that you haven't shared. And, you know, what ones come to mind? Most of them I can't tell. <laughs> right. Oh, you can um, tell us. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, there was fun times. I mean, what, we had a show with uh, Motley Crue in Evansville, and they were in Indianapolis the next day. So I, I needed to get back, and I, I got to ride back, you know, from Evansville to Indianapolis on their jet with them. So that was a lot of Jack Daniels and, and uh, fun mm -hmm. with those guys. Um, I, I don't know. There's – so many stories. Um, Any with my boss? Uh, not really. Okay. That's <laughs> good. Really. Okay. <laughs> well, you guys used to do, you know, back in the day, you know, even before you were in the band, Dane, I mean, you guys used to do multiple nights of, of, of John, you know, John Cougar shows, John Cougar Mellencamp, John Mellencamp, whatever. And I know, Dane, you were in the band when they were still doing multiples out of Deer Creek too. But Yeah. did a lot of shows, that's for sure. But, you know, it was not a lot of interaction with, with John or not much with the band either, except, you know, Toby, you know, Toby and uh, um, John Cassell were always, you know, were good, good friends back from when we managed those bands in the seventies. So. You mentioned being a big fan of the beach boys. Had you any encounters, personal encounters with those guys? Yeah. The, I remember the first show that I promoted with them. It was a pretty exciting, you know, to do that. And I, it was, I think it was in Louisville and, you know, but you know, you go back and meet them and you say, you were my big heroes. And like, they hear that from everybody. So, so I, I was never a guy to get my photo taken with the band and talk and reach out too much because I just felt like I was one of a million people just trying to, to friend with them. You know what I mean? So yeah, I never did that too much. 
I was in a band. I was in a band on the same label as as Rush back in the seventies, and we actually opened up for the Beach Boys for three nights. So it was extraordinary for us to be anywhere within their airspace. You know, which band? Um, what what name was the name of the band? Uh, Ian Thomas Band. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, we Max Webster, Larry Gowan, Ian Thomas, and yeah. Rush were managed by Ray at the time, Ray Daniels. Right. And uh, yeah, so we got, we got to open up for the band. We actually did a Beach Boys set in our club show, which we of course dispensed with as an opening act. But well, in fairness, we actually did a better Good Vibrations than they did at that point in their career. They were a little sluggish, I found. I mean, they're really great. I mean, they're very good, but it took like a nine-piece, ten-piece ensemble to pull off their music live. Well, the other the other things that were kind of monumental to me, you know, was I mean, our first Rolling Stones day was oh my god, yeah, yeah. you know, so it's nineteen seventy five, and I've only been a promoter for three years. Wow. Yeah, so I didn't get started in the club business. You know, I started doing shows in theaters and in arenas and and then and and three years after i got started i got a rolling stones date and then we got a second rolling stones date in louisville because they canceled one of their shows and we got that that but to do the stones you know back then that was a big highlight of our our career it helped it helped sunshine grow Mm -hmm. how many Stone shows did you did you work into the eighties on their when they started building their their show to the size of a city? Yeah, we did shows with the Stones in 75, 78, eight, when they played every three years, you know, 75, 78, 81. and then and then we did the eighty nine shows at uh, at the Hoosier Dome, the you know, Steel the, Wheels tour. Yeah, yeah, the Steel, yeah. The, the double night thing. We had the party at St. St. Elmo's and the night, you know, between the shows. And, uh, yeah. So that's awesome. Amazing things. But to do, to do Paul McCartney a bunch of times, yeah. I mean, you know, he's a Beatle yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Ringo too. And we did, you know, a bunch of the Ringo shows and just a thrill to do shows with those guys. So I, I did get to meet McCartney and I did get her, to meet Ringo and stuff. Nice. So. That's awesome. Nice. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool, man. Wow. Well, thank you, Steve. Do you guys have any other questions for Steve? I don't think so. Wow. What a what a career you've had, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Very awesome. Yeah. Well, that, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been fascinating to hear your stories. Well, thanks. And I appreciate speaking with you guys today. Yeah. And be sure to check out IndianaRockHistory.com. And Steve, uh, you know, keep on keeping on. One thing I've always admired about Steve is he doesn't stop. Uh, as, you know, he's got a lot of great old stories, but, you know, just when you think, you know, you can sit around and share old stories, he's doing something that, you know, something new and exciting. So it's, it's really inspirational, Steve. Thanks. Amazing. Well, best of luck, well, thank Steve. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah.